0: If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Lord, we ask that you would, in fact, bless not only the reading of, but the explaining of your word, that as we look at this text together, we might better know the person of Jesus Christ and better worship him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. John draws our attention to Jesus' first miracle so that we will believe Him more dependently and glorify Him more willingly. This is an amazing text of Scripture. All Scripture is amazing. But as we move into this chapter, we see a deliberate effort to communicate and expose really the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus performed. There's more to it than just that. There's more to it than just the fact that he performed a miracle. There's a sense in which a miracle is nothing for God, but clearly the timing of this miracle was critical, and the timing is maybe as important, perhaps even more important than the miracle itself. As we look at this passage, you will be mindful of the false miracles that you have been exposed to in our day and age. It's not new, but there's so much going on under the name miracle. Every time something happens that surprises someone, they say, oh, that was a miracle. Or especially in the event that something happens that's truly great, they say, oh, that's a miracle. Let me just tell you that spiritual growth is not a miracle. Spiritual regeneration is. When God saved you, that was the certain result of the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why when we ask someone to explain their understanding of the church, the understanding of what it means to be a Christian, in order for us to affirm them as a member of the body of Christ, we're looking for the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the capstone of the Christian faith was displayed. And so... When we think of a miracle, we ought to think of something like that, something that overturns the natural, not you getting a job. That's great news. And you could very well, confidently, and gratefully say, that's from the Lord. But not everything that's from the Lord is a miracle. The term miracle in the Scripture is reserved for the overturning of the natural. You can say it this way. A miracle is impossible. When you see something done that is impossible, such as resurrection from the dead, that's a miracle. When The waters of the Red Sea were parted. That's not possible for that to happen physically. Some would say, well, it did, therefore it is possible, Well, that dismisses and really waters down the significance of what God and God alone can do and what he does in the flash of the moment that he accomplishes something in such a way that you didn't see it coming, you didn't even see it happen, which is expressed in John chapter 3, which we'll get to soon in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where he points to the reality that the wind comes from where? I don't know. Where does it go? I don't know. But it has its impact. It's the miraculous work of the Spirit of God. And what you see here, what we see here in this text together this morning is just that, a miraculous work that only God could perform. As I said in the beginning, John draws our attention here to Jesus' first sign, his first miracle. Why? Let's go ahead and jump to the chase. Let me just tell you, the whole point of this text is to bring you to deeper belief more dependent trust in the person of Christ. And I think what we will discuss here will be helpful to you to that end. There might be some element to this that has escaped your memory, maybe even something that might be brand new to you. That's the idea, though, that you would trust him more deeply in light of what we've read together this morning. Not only that, that you'd worship him more willingly. Well, let's look at our text together in an effort to see how the Lord might use us as we interact together over the Word of God to help one another believe more deeply, more richly, and to worship more faithfully, more willingly. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. This is the third day since the most recent event in our text, back in chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, where Jesus decided to go to Galilee and find Philip and say to him, follow me. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And of course, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Philip is convinced and Nathaniel will be as well. So we are a week in here since John the Baptist was interrogated by the priests and Levites sent by the Pharisees to determine who he was. That was day one in this series. On day two, in verse 29, he announces Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. That was day two. Day three, verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Day four, in verse 43. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Of course, Philip finds Nathanael and tells him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So down in verse 51, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a reference to the Old Testament record in Genesis 28 of Jacob's dream of a ladder It stretched from earth to heaven with angels ascending and descending upon it. And in the context of this image, the Lord promises for Jacob and his offspring, his offspring will be great in numbers, like the particles of dust throughout the earth, and their blessing to enjoy massive amounts of land from the west to the east to the north and to the south. The latter represents God's willingness to bless his people himself on earth and in heaven. As he says in verse 15, behold. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. That's where we left off last week. Chapter 1, where Jesus says to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. According to chapter 2, verse 1, it's the third day since that event with Nathaniel, And so, as I said, we are a week in to the entire record. Verse 1 goes on to say there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Galilee, the greater region in which these little bitty towns are deposited here and there. Cana among those towns, a small town for sure. Much smaller than Nazareth. Weddings are critical to the display of God's goodness to mankind. What does a wedding do? It's not simply an entry into marriage. I do a lot of marriage counseling, uh, premarital counseling, and um, you know, I often will say, I'm looking forward to helping you prepare for your wedding, but what I'm really hoping to help prepare you for is your marriage. And so that comment left by itself could give the idea that the wedding is just kind of an event, just kind of a sort of a celebratory entryway into the marriage. Not true at all. The wedding is intended to be a gateway into a lifetime of displaying Christ's marriage with his bride. Any wedding in any era, in any culture is a big deal. Now, that's not to say that there aren't weddings that aren't big deals. Some folks, you know, just kind of go to the courthouse and 30 minutes later they're officially married, and that's a legal marriage. Nothing wrong with that in terms of what's actually taking place legally, but God's better design is a wedding that represents Christ's wedding to his bride. There would be a transaction that displays a lifelong commitment that is expressive of an eternal commitment. There's no marriage in heaven, but the marriage that takes place on earth is eternal in a representative sense in that it's earthly. Let no man put asunder. Let no man separate what God has established. And so when John points us here to this wedding event. He's not just saying, hey, it's a party, it's a fun event. There's a theological and intrinsic purpose behind the focus upon a wedding in the heart of the author, the author being God. Marriage is given to mankind, it's given to believers and unbelievers. As a pastor, I'd have no problem marrying two unbelievers. Of course, in my mind, that's a massive opportunity to communicate the gospel through a series of counseling sessions that ultimately, in my hope, would result in both individuals repenting of their sins and coming to know Christ. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, if you were to do a cursory reading of this text, you might, you might have missed that little phrase that says, the grace of life it has nothing to do with eternal life. It's just the grace of life, just in general, the joy and the benefit of the common grace of having someone with whom to spend your life, to share dreams and anticipations and hopes and sorrows with. I know plenty of married, unbelieving couples who experience that natural joy. It pales in comparison to the joy of a spirit-filled Christian marriage. But he says, uh, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is really a, a deep and penetrating truth that for the man who can't seem to get a grasp on why his marriage is disintegrating and that God's not answering his prayers. I would suggest that there is high likelihood that it is rooted in his treatment of his wife. That's what Peter says. Peter, of course, here is talking. He's uh, delivering this in the context of uh, unequally yoked marriages, that there would be a willingness on the part of a Christian man to treat his wife with care, to live with her in an understanding way, not expecting her to be forgivable. Um, one of my most favorite books to criticize is Gary Chapman's book, The Love Languages. It probably caused more confusion in Christian marriages than, than most any book ever written. The entire purpose, by the way, you will not find the gospel. Some would say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, the whole purpose of marriage is to display the gospel. And so the gospel is not in the book, first of all. Let's start there. Second, the whole purpose is to figure out how to serve your spouse so that your spouse will serve you exactly how you want to be served. Just If you haven't read the book, I encourage you to read You know, maybe two or three pages, and it won't take that long for you to figure out that that's exactly what the intent is. I don't even know what the five love languages are supposed to be. I don't really care. I know that the one love language of Scripture is humility. It's humility. Read First Peter, especially chapter 3, and what you will see is that humility is the solution for struggling marriages. As displayed in the person of Christ who gave his life, he was willing to die, suffer death to the point of death on a cross. That's Humility. God himself would become a man, a defenseless baby, grow into adulthood, obey his father completely, serve mankind practically and effectively and eternally, and to give his life. That's humility. And that is what a husband is called to do. And that's what a wedding is supposed to introduce. It's my great privilege. It's my great privilege. Anytime someone would ask me to be involved in their wedding, to solemnize the marriage. My answer has never been, yes, I'll do that. My answer has always been, what an honor. Thank you. Let's talk about that. And for those with whom I had that joy, there was faithfulness to be subject to truth, to faithfully and willingly look with me at Scripture to see what it says about, number one, what it means to be a Christian, and number two, what marriage is. Man, have I seen the lights come on. By the way, I use the same counseling material for those who are struggling in their marriages because it's the same exact criteria by which the Lord produces joy and humility and unity and harmony. All things there in 1 Peter 3 that Peter calls a man and a woman to. There's much more than that in Ephesians 5. there's much more than what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3 regarding the marriage duty, the marriage responsibility, the privilege for a man who is in Christ serving his wife who is apparently not in Christ by living with her in an understanding way, or vice versa, the wife doing the same thing. There's more to it in Ephesians 5. Listen to this. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loves the church. I asked a guy this one time many years ago. I asked him, do you think you love your wife as Christ loves the church? And he said, oh, yeah, I really do. I really do. He'd been treating her so poorly. He said, I really do. I said, what do you mean by that? So, said, oh, I just think about her all the time. I'm always. No, 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 you're on the wrong path, my friend. You have an emotional interest in the person who sleeps in the same bed with you. That's what your interest is. That's not love. You call it a number of things. It might be parallel to love, but in his case, it certainly was not. What he wanted was to be treated as he thought he deserved. Another man I was counseling years ago, as I talked to him about the idea of living with his wife in an understanding way, his comment was, as he and I mean his eyes were bright red, I don't understand her. And I said, okay, join the club. It's not what Peter says. He doesn't say, understand your wife. He says, live with her in an understanding way. It's very different. You say, well, how are they, how are they different? It sounds like the same thing. They're not the same thing. To live with her in an understanding way is to be understanding of her. To say understand her means you got her figured out. Lots of luck. And same for her toward you. What person is totally understandable? It's not about wives being impossible to understand. Certainly not my point. But the reality is I don't know my wife's heart all the time. But back to Ephesians 5, I should operate in an effort to do so. To live with her in an understanding way is the beginning. But to love her as Christ loves the church is the practice Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is there a consistency in a man's life by which he proves that he would die for her if he had the opportunity in his willingness to live for her? Back to 1 Peter 3. Not responding to insult with insult or revile with revile, but to return insult with a blessing. Some guys will say, hey, a man can only take so much. Christ didn't say that. And Christ is the example. He's the standard. This wedding that Jesus was attending was a display of that. That's what weddings are intended to do. Ephesians 5 goes on to say in verse 26 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is really, really obvious what this means. He by no means is calling you to love yourself. Lovers of self are selfish Paul in 2 Timothy 3 points out that they're not Christians, yet this pseudo or quasi-theology has overtaken the church today. You've got to love yourself before you can love others. People will say, oh, it sounds so good. And there is an element to your perspective on yourself that is critical before you would treat others properly, but it has nothing to do with self-exaltation. Love of self, Scripture never calls you to that. It assumes it about you. And that's what Paul is doing here. In your interest in you, let that be the standard by which you have interest in your wife. Remember, you don't have any problem remembering when you're hungry. But to be unconcerned with your wife's hunger would show that you're not really Loving her as Christ loves the church. Verse 30 in Ephesians 5 goes on to say, because we are members of his body. See that? This interdependence of the body. This is why everything we do in our church, everything, every detail of what we do as a local church is exactly for you. Every minute of our worship service is designed exactly for your spiritual growth. From the opening prayer, to the ministry matters, to the reading of Scripture, to the recitation of a memory verse, which is the heart of the passage that we're in together from the previous week, to the singing of an opening song that is intended to call your attention to the Word of God and your responsibility and your privilege to hear faithful preaching of the Word of God, to the actual preaching, which is the highlight of our time together, and then an opportunity for application or implication in the singing of songs, sound theology together. Today, the Lord's table, a closing prayer, an invitation to our guests to get to know more about our church. Every single thing we do is strategically intended for you to love Christ more and to be faithful to him. That's the design and our willingness to do that is reflective of this verse, verse 30, because we are members of his body. Members. Each person. Equally important. Equally critical to the proper function of the body. The consumer mindset with which you might have come to this church is utterly destroyed by a handful of words right there. Members of his body. So many folks who've come new to our church said, wow, this is heavy. You know, maybe you've been to an affirmation service where we have affirmed a new member of our church, and you listen to all that, and you say, wow, that's asking an awful lot. It's all right out of the Bible. It's exactly what God has designed for the body, but it's not an unbearable burden. It's a pleasant burden. It's a joy knowing that the body takes care of itself under the headship of Christ that's what's displayed in a wedding that's what a wedding is supposed to communicate passage in Ephesians goes on to say therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church it's permanent it's permanent it's predetermined in eternity past and it's permanent this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so that's what's going on here. And it's offensive in our culture that says, you know, 25 bucks will get you a divorce. I've seen that sign before. Of course, it costs more than that, you know that. Not just more money, but it costs your flesh. The idea is that your flesh is ripped apart. Jesus reveres marriage. He reveres weddings. He's there under invitation with the disciples, with his mother. And he honors the event. Since the mother of Jesus was there, our text this morning, verse 1 the mother of Jesus was there. Notice he doesn't say the mother of God was there. She's not the mother of God. You say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus is God. That's called deductive reasoning. Get that out of your mind. Inductive Bible study. That's why we use the word inductive instead of deductive reasoning. You know, you come to these conclusions, you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus is God, the Spirit's God, the Father's God, therefore Jesus is the Spirit, the Spirit is the Father. That's heresy. It's damning heresy. So what do we believe? We believe what the Bible says. And and we believe it without apology. It's offensive, even for believers. And by the way, like in the email I sent out to you recently, your role as a member of the Anchor Bible Church is to receive the word of God and to go home to determine whether or not what you're being told is so. To do it faithfully, diligently. Again, not to be cherry-picking, looking for things. Oh, see that? Oh, this over here? And to just pit Scripture against Scripture. Scripture. And if you've gotten into a pattern of that, again, just confess that and stop doing it. But subject yourself to sound teaching. I mean, really drink deeply from the Word of God. Know that the Lord will use that pattern and that practice in your life. The idea that Mary is the mother of God. Mary is not the mother of God. She is the human mother of the human Jesus. So much bad theology rooted in this text, or I should say falsely derived from this text in John 2 in the Roman Catholic organization. Mary did not give birth to God. Does that make sense? Is that enough? Mary gave birth to Jesus. God, the second person of the Trinity, existed in eternity past. Is this a hard theology? Sure. Is it impossible? Not for the believer. No. No. Because he appraises all things. He's the spiritual man, 1 Corinthians 2, no longer the natural man. But the natural man listens to this stuff, and he forces himself to just kind of acquiesce to a lot of it. But the things that he really doesn't like, he's willing to reject, saying it doesn't add up. Someone approached me a couple of weeks ago right after the sermon with a very encouraging word, and it was this. You know that man-made theology? It's so easy to believe. It makes so much sense. And I said, you're right. You're right. Most every new believer comes into the faith believing that he chose Christ. It's so easy to believe. It's so soul-warming. It's so self-esteem-building. But in time, when you're taught well and you're faithful to Scripture, you begin to see truths and you begin to see the reality that this was the mother of Jesus, not the mother of God. Mary was likely related to those in the wedding party. Nazareth was a small town itself, Cana, where the wedding takes place, is much smaller, maybe a hundred people, maybe a few hundred people at this wedding. Most everyone's related. Mary was not only invited but apparently involved in the administration of the wedding event. She had some stake in it for the wedding party. Verse 2 says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. This is still quite early in Jesus' earthly ministry, but not only he, but those who followed him closely were specifically invited. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, this is not a parable, right? It's not a parable. It is a historical event wherein Jesus' first miracle takes place. Well, there is much to be gleaned spiritually, you don't want to miss the point that these are real people with a real problem about to experience a real solution. Once you understand this, there's no need to search out too much hidden or symbolized spiritual lesson. The meat should easily fall off the bone once you understand this text. Now, I'm not saying that there is no spiritual lesson here. There is. My point is, don't be looking high and low for some spiritual application in your own life, which is often the case with deductive Bible study, with Bible study that just kind of looks at the text and says, okay, now how does this apply to my life? That's really the goal of bad Bible study. What does this have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you, but the core issue is in the text and what has happened as I said, it will naturally fall out. It will naturally come to your mind. I'll point it out, but you'll see it as we go through this text. This is what I love and I think you love about grammatical historical hermeneutic. It forces you to look at what the text actually says, and it forces you to reckon with that. A false man-made theology just wants you to feel better about You and dismissing the things that you see in Scripture, and doing so with some measure of passion. More about that later regarding how this is all going to come together. You'll see the spiritual emphasis. But for now, Mary, who raised Jesus and whose husband is gone from the picture, we don't hear from him from since quite some time back. Jesus was 12 years old. That's the last... Expression we hear of Joseph. He's presumably dead, and so Jesus and Mary's relationship is greatly influenced by that. Joseph, a faithful and godly earthly father, now absent, would have meant that Jesus, the oldest of a number of sons, would have been the head of the house. And you could say (laughs) he would most certainly have been dependable, a reliable oldest son. Now, Mary would not have known that Jesus was about to perform a miracle, but she certainly would have known that he was special. And that word really doesn't conjure up what we're talking about here. She wouldn't have known that he would perform a miracle, but she certainly knew that his life was a miracle, directly from God as he was given to her and to mankind by having been made with child by God the Holy Spirit and informed of it by an angel of the Lord. After the angel visits Mary in Luke 1 in her Magnificat, her prayer, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Again, just utterly destructive, cutting at the root of all Roman Catholic mariolatry. Uh, The root of Roman Catholicism is faith plus works. Pointed out many times, the Council of Trent in 1545 declares that he who says that salvation is by grace through faith alone is anathema. He's accursed. The Council of Trent goes on repeatedly to explain that salvation is rooted not only in what Christ accomplished, but what those who respond to it accomplish. That's Roman Catholicism at its root. But this very substantial expression of that comes in worship of Mary, with which Mary would be utterly Mortified if she had any awareness of it, which she doesn't. But this worship of her really displaces worship of Christ. She worships him today. She was trusting in him for what? For salvation. She was a sinner. She's a godly woman, blessed of, of all women, but in need of a savior. She refers to him that way. Jesus would have been reliable. So for her to come to him would have been an expression of some sort of expectation. You see, he had never sinned. Every bit of counsel he ever gave was spot on. Every performance of every task his mother or father had given him would have been done with perfection. You know, you would never have gone back and said, oh, but you, you missed this. Any parents ever do that? Does that happen to you too? I asked you to do two things. You only did one. No, not with Jesus. He would have done three, right? They'd gone the extra mile for sure. He never colored things to make himself look better. How could you look better than perfection? He never did anything to gain anything. He knew what was best, and he wanted what was best. So he didn't have any interest in manipulation. So for Mary to go to him and say, they have no wine, was what she would have done naturally. But in this case, it was clear that she had some expectation of him to do something. She had something in her mind in terms of expectation. We don't know what it was. But she went directly to him as a representative of the wedding party. Hey, son, the wine is gone, and you're awesome. (laughs) Do something. Roman Catholic theology really misses the point here, declaring that this is an expression of Mary's authority over Jesus. Quite the contrary, it is an expression of her trust in Jesus to accomplish something good. And he doesn't respond with simple obedience of a son to his mother. Verse 4 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, I don't think I ever called my mom a woman. Okay, now you know, different culture, different language. Somewhere between woman and lady is what this means. Certainly wasn't disrespectful like it would be if you said that to someone that you'd never met. You know, you see somebody in the grocery store, hey, woman, you know, that's rude. That's certainly not what Jesus was doing here. But it also was not really any significant effort to exhibit honor it wasn't being dishonorable but it wasn't a heightened term it wasn't a term of majesty certainly not of co-redemptrix it's just a natural term that he uses for his mother and by the way he doesn't change his mindset that leads him to use this word here because he says it right before he dies it's the same term He says it to her. So there's something quite right, in fact, perfect, well, about everything Jesus ever did or ever does. But certainly in this case, don't think of this as some sort of momentary dissatisfaction or frustration with his mother. He's simply calling her what a man would have called his mother in this context, And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He knew her expectation as he knew all things about all men. Down in verse 24 of this chapter, we read, He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the details. They're not given to us but what we know is that he knew the details of what her intention was so he felt the need to tell her that his time had not yet come what time the time for him to reveal himself to be what she knew about him from the angel that's what she knew she also had her experience with him certainly he would have disclosed something along the way of the theology of the resurrection his death his life But he's saying, this is not my time. There was some expectation on her part that the time might have come. Here it is. There's a problem. You're a problem solver. You're the ultimate problem solver. In fact, you're sovereign over problems. Maybe now is the time where you will expose yourself as the one who has been given to Israel, as declared by John the Baptist. That's why John baptized, that he would be seen. And embraced by Israel. But his time had not yet come. For her, for Mary, this was the day the Jews had all been waiting for. Let's show this wedding party who you are. But Mary also knew and understood and embraced her new role in his life. Verse 5 says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Not. Jesus, do what I tell you. Not, okay, servants, go tell Jesus to do these things for you and he will do them for you. She says to them with some measure of authority, some involvement in administration of the wedding, do whatever he tells you. It is an expression of not only their, but her subjection to his authority. Now, Mary received a gentle rebuke here. It was gentle, but nonetheless, it was a rebuke. See, there's a social disaster at hand. This is is miserable. The groom's family would be responsible for providing what was very likely a week's worth of food and wine to go along with it all week long. And this is the first day. And the wine is gone. You can't conjure up. You couldn't craft a greater social disaster. There would have been several meals. And all of it would have required the supplement of something to drink. Wine was what they drank. Not water. It's too difficult to purify water. It was a tremendous process. Wine was purified from inception the process of developing you know cultivating and bringing the wine to the place where it was palatable and consumable it's a purifying process wine was naturally pure verse 6 says now there were six stone water jars there for the jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons See, stone was used in these vessels for ceremonial cleansing as it was less likely to be penetrated by some some uncleanness than, than a wood vessel would. Wood would absorb that uncleanness. We get some insight here from Mark 7, verse 3, where it says, "...for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash." And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 120 to 180 gallons worth of capacity. That's a lot of cleansing. That's a lot of water to be cleansed. D.A. Carson says their purpose provides a clue to one of the meanings of the story. The water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus was to replace with something better. The ceremonial process that would have still been existent in the life of a modern or a contemporary Jew of that day would have required this cleansing process to take place. Of course, they were so misguided in it, you know, that they... Embrace the letter of the law and not the spirit. Mark 7 verse 5 says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites. See, I love this. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture here Mark 7. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. It's a powerful, powerful statement. Those purifying pots, those pots intended to be used for the purification of water were representative of a dead system. The Old Covenant. That had its place but was so misused and so misguided, it was symbolic. It was never really purifying. And yet the modern Jew would have believed that those water pots would have actually held that, which would actually purify in some sort of spiritual sense. Verse 9 in Mark 7 goes on to say, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's what man-made theology does, and Jesus attacks it with a vengeance. In our text in verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Filling them to the brim would have prevented him from adding anything to them. Whatever trickery they might have suspected him to engage in would have been prevented by that. Verse 8 says, And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So while Mary and the servants knew what Jesus had done, the maitre d clearly did not know. All he knew was that this, this was the best wine. It, in fact, would have been perfect. Where did Jesus get it? There's no way for him to make it. Wine takes time. Grapes and other fruit have to be cultivated, watered, nurtured, harvested, crushed, stored, prepared, aged, sealed, and served. There's no time for any of that. There's no time for any of that. But what did happen? Let me tell you what didn't happen. There's no drama. There's no drama here. We don't know what he did, except that we know that he turned water into wine. Today, when you see the false dealings of the charismatic hucksters, it's always intended to draw attention to the performer, actor, false teacher who's doing it. Always. It's always the purpose. He doesn't take off his coat and swing it around. (laughs) He doesn't even say, watch this. As far as we know, everybody missed it. Except the servants. Mary knew. What's going on here? What's happening here? There's a problem. It's a massive problem, it's a social disgrace. Jesus here shows compassion on a family. Who had failed to prepare. For whatever reason, they weren't ready for the event. And humanly speaking, Jesus fixes it with compassion. Apparently, the wedding coordinator had failed, the bridegroom was shamed. Again, it says the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is common to every culture in every time frame. You do the same thing out of love for your guests. You buy what you know is going to be good and pleasant. You, You work hard to make it enjoyable. Pleasing. As far as the bridegroom knew, this was the best wine he had. He provided that which he thought was adequate in quality and in volume, but he had underplanned. His role during a Jewish one-year betrothal would have been to prove to his bride's family that he was worthy of her, able to take care of her. And he would have been ruined in the moment. Disaster, shame, complete failure. But Jesus in his compassion. This is a real story. You remember that, right? It actually happened. And the joy and the, the relief the bridegroom would have known in this moment would have been inexpressible. Jesus in his compassion, not out of a desperate Effort to please and obey his mother, but out of compassion, provided wine. He provided the best wine, the purest, most perfect, sweetest, completely pure wine. Verse 11, and this is the point. This is the point. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That's the point. It's a real event. It's a real story. It really happened. And Jesus takes this opportunity to display his glory. It's not yet his time. His hour has not yet come. That didn't change what hour? The hour of his first miracle? No, that time had come. But the hour of a full display of all that he is and all that he would do? No. But the time had come by way of his first sign, his first miracle, to do what? his glory. His glory. He's the God-man. He's not just man. He's not the God of docetism where God exists in an image. He's the God-man. The incarnation is not only true, it's critical. Mary knew him to be her son. Now she knows him to be the miracle worker. Jesus, the miracle worker. And this proved his deity. Now let me tell you this for you. What does this have to do with you? What does this mean for you? We say it this way there is no less glory in this moment for you to have read this text than there was when it happened. The Word of God, the record in Scripture, is that which displays His glory. It's not your experience. You might say it this way it's your experience when you read God's Word. This event should produce in you and in me right now a deeper dependence upon Jesus Christ and a greater willingness to glorify him. Matthew twelve thirty eight says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus declares that for those who are looking for a sign, they're wicked. But you have the Word of God. Mark 13, 31 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Is it your exposure to the word of God specifically in the declaration of the true historical events of the person and the work of Jesus Christ that lead you to depend on him more passionately and worship him more faithfully that's what should happen it's the proclamation of the word of God not waiting for a sign not looking for a miracle See, the purpose of this passage is not just for you to gain historical knowledge about the life of Jesus. You should want to know him better. But not simply to know him better for the purpose of knowledge or to have the historical record straight. And it's certainly not for the purpose of some random life application like how to treat your mother. Or how to make better wine. Or how to be a better host at your wedding. It's not the issue. The result should be that we, disciples of Jesus, have a richer and more accurate understanding of what Jesus did in the performance of his first miracle and that as a result, we would believe. We should believe more certainly, more deeply, and more dependently, and more worshipfully because his glory is manifest. We, disciples, must believe, and we will want to worship. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Savior, the Lamb of God, the one who, in humility, displayed for us what marriage means, and then, in humility, attended a wedding, and in compassion, granted a solution to a a really practical problem. But he did so much more. He proved his deity. The small, really, handful of people looking on would have been convinced. Scripture tells us that his disciples believed. So, Lord, we trust that in our hearts today we would walk out of here as, in a sense, new believers, believing more deeply, more faithfully, worshiping more lovingly, more dependently and we ask these things in Jesus name Amen